0: Tonight's scripture is from the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Well, if you've been here uh, this summer, and welcome back, those that were in other places, you know that a lot has been going on. It's been a good summer. I believe we've had a good time in studying Galatians and life in the Spirit and freedom from legalism. And we've also had uh, quite a lot of conversation about the city, uh, mentoring, a lot of the children that you saw tonight, uh, and a number of other things pertaining to our being God's worshiping community in the heart of the city. And as you probably picked up as we went along... I, I've had some uh, tension um, in my own heart uh, as we've kind of walked all this out this summer. And maybe tension is the wrong word. Maybe I'd say I felt things shifting around a little bit in my heart as I've uh, walked with the kids and walked with you. And I don't really know what all that is about. I, I do know that one of the ways I process things with the Lord and try to hear from the Lord is through having opportunities to teach on them. And so uh, I began to ask the Lord in the middle of the summer, would there ever be a time when I could just take a, a night and try to process uh, all that's been going on this summer and all the experiences we've had? Um, but I didn't know when to do that. And then my friend John Wood at Cedar Springs called me this week and said, hey, can you come out and preach Sunday? And, and then said it was their home missions program uh, Sunday. They support 25 different ministries to the community. And I thought, well, maybe this is the time. Um, And so that's why we're doing this a little bit differently tonight. I felt that it would be an opportunity um, both for them, but also for us. We'll still try to finish Galatians next week. But I I thought it was an opportunity to step back and look at a text that talks about uh, some very important truths that we wrestle with a lot as a body, and I 'd like to begin with two tragedies um, that have kind of been, been difficult for me to reconcile in my, in my mind this summer. Um, you're very familiar with the first one. On the, April 15th, 2013, 2:39 2 p.m, two pressure cooker bombs exploded near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Three people died. Many, many more were injured. Within minutes of the bombing, you probably watched it. It was on every station. I remember watching it upstairs in the conference room. Uh, within minutes, thousands of police officers swarmed Boston. Uh, within hours, uh, the, the, the FBI was sent in to join in the manhunt. Uh, I think they shut down a big part of the city. They said, the mayor said to the citizens, shelter in place. Uh, almost immediately... Uh, The Massachusetts Governor, Deval Patrick, launched something called One Fund Boston to raise money for the bombing victims, and within a couple of days, they raised two million dollars for those that are murdered and hurt in the bombing. And then a month later, Jimmy Buffett, Carol King, Aerosmith, James Taylor, and other bands hosted the Boston Strong concert, and they raised hundreds of thousands of other uh, more money for the victims. Now. You're probably aware that our city has had its share of violence this summer, too. Um, On July 26, the New Sentinel ran an article, um, An Eruption of Violence, Western Heights Residents Seeing Flurry of Shootings. And uh, we have a a number of young ladies uh, from Western Heights here tonight. I don't know if they've all gone to their classes, Um, but they're mentored by some of our sisters in the back there. And uh, let me just read an excerpt from what's going on in their neighborhood. Since June 7th, four shootings have occurred within a half-mile area near Western Heights. Gunshots killed three people and wounded three others. Tammy Fumina, 37, was sitting in a car in the Ridgebrook development about 12.35 a.m. June 7th when a bullet struck the vehicle and then entered her back. She recovered from the wound. No arrest has been made in her shooting. Eleven hours later, a spray of bullets flew in the front yard at 1430 Nolan Avenue, fatally wounding Unica Brown, who had recently birthed twin girls. About 7.40 p.m. July 14th, shots filled the air at 1703 Reed Street in Western Heights. Two men, Abel Henry, 21, and Robert Raid, 21, were wounded. A third man, Mark Anna, 21, also was shot and died. The most recent shooting was reported about 8.45 a.m. July 18th when work crews found the body of Conrad Wise, 57, in Malcolm Markin Park. No one has been charged in Wise's death, which was the 15th slaying recorded this year in Knoxville. Now, as far as I know, there have been no celebrity rock concerts uh, raising funds for those families. No governor or mayor has set up a fundraising campaign, and the FBI has not shown up to help. And one of the things that I've thought a lot about this summer is, why was there such a difference in outpouring of response to the Boston murders compared to such a little response to the Western Heights murders? And... I know you could argue that hundreds were wounded in the Boston bombing and so more aid was needed. And I know you could argue that uh, there was a concern that a national security risk was going on and so it required a greater response. You might be right there. But I feel that there is a deeper problem at work here. And it's this, that most of us, not all of us, but most of us, are not very connected to the pain and suffering of the most vulnerable members of our community. The overwhelming response to the headline-grabbing Boston murders is more the exception than the rule. Too often, we're either unaware or not very concerned about the everyday suffering of the poor in our own community. Now that's a a problem for Christians who take the Bible seriously. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is boiling it down. He says essentially there's two parts to it. Uh, I think we work pretty hard typically on the second half, about keeping unstained from the world, and we should. Uh, The churches I've been a part of over the years, including this one, I think we try hard. We study our Bibles and we pray and we hold each other accountable and we confess our sin and we practice healing prayer and we try to stay morally pure. And I I think that's very, very important. But I think it's harder, perhaps, for most of us to do the first half of James' definition. I think we're learning a lot about that in our church. But it's... It's challenging. I don't think we always do as good a job with the part about visiting the widow and the orphan in their distress. And, and I think that's something all souls is called to put into more of a balance, uh, both uh, the inward purity, the inward holiness, the life in Christ, the life in the Spirit, with the external mission into the city. Now James... Uh, is the half-brother of our Lord. He's the first bishop of Jerusalem. He probably wrote this letter in the late 40s. Christians were scattered by then across the Roman Empire. They were mostly living in cities, and so he's mostly writing to urban churches and in these cities. Fifteen years or so had passed since Christ had exploded from the grave. The gale-force winds of Pentecost had ebbed a bit in many churches, and so James writes a letter Uh, challenging these believers to examine themselves and see if they're in the faith. In in chapter 1, beginning in verse 22 to 27, we come into a section where James contrasts true and false religion. And in verse 26, he gives an example of false religion. He says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then James gives an example of authentic religion in verse 27. And he describes this as religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. Or I like how the NIV translates it. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. Now what kind of religion does God our Father accept as pure and faultless? He says it's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. Tonight I want to look at the first part with you. Orphans and widows were among the most vulnerable members of the ancient city. When the the biblical writers speak of orphans and widows, they're they're using a kind of shorthand, referring to uh, anyone who lacks resources or protection. In the day that James wrote this, this was a strange idea. The religions of the Roman Empire didn't consider mercy to be one of their core values. Uh, The philosopher Seneca thought that drowning poor children at birth was a reasonable way to control population growth. Plato and Aristotle considered murdering infants as an efficient efficient way to keep city costs down. And mercy was seen as a weakness. But The early Christians were constantly caring for their vulnerable neighbors. Uh, In in a 1908 classic, The the Mission and Expansion of Christianity, a church historian records ten ways the early church cared for the vulnerable in their own community. They collected alms and gave them to the poor. They organized charity work. They supported widows and orphans. They supported the sick, infirm, poor, and disabled. They cared for prisoners and those sentenced to the mines. They buried the dead when a family could not afford to do so. They cared for slaves. They cared for people visited by great calamities. They provided jobs for the unemployed. They cared for brethren on a journey and for churches in poverty or peril. So authentic religion, according to James, biblical religion, pure and undefiled religion, involves a commitment to care for the weakest members of the city. Now, Catholic theologians have called this a commitment to the common good. And a commitment to the common good is grounded in a belief that all human beings bear God's image and are thus interconnected, bound together as partners in the dance of life. Andy Crouch, who is an editor for Christianity Today, recently argued that evangelicals have good reason to embrace the common good as well. He defines it as pursuing the sum total of conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. A commitment to the common good includes a belief that we're all in this together, especially when we share the same city. Martin Luther King put it like this: In a real sense, all life is interrelated. The agony of the poor enriches the rich. We are inevitably our brother's keeper because we are our brother's brother. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I think if there's something that I've learned, I was trying to think. We're um, we're going coming up on our ninth birthday as a church and. This would be our 10th year of being down here. If there's something I've, I've learned, is that too often I don't see my life as interrelated with the life of those who suffer the most in our city. Um, I, just, I just often don't get that. And I'll tell you an example of how I know that. I saw the headlines of the Western Heights shooting. I remember doing this. There was a, there was a picture on the front page of the paper and I looked at it for about a minute, and then I flipped to the sports section because I wanted to see if we'd gotten a four-star recruit for the football team. And it just was kind of like white noise that uh, just didn't interest me that much. But I had a conversation um, that's changed my life. And, and I want you to treat me a little bit like a grandfather here. I'm going to tell some stories That I may have told before, but in my family, when my grandfather starts telling stories, you just kind of smile and let him tell them. So if you've heard this before, just smile and uh, let me tell it again. Um, You all do know, of course, um, about Nisa Humphrey, the mother of these lovely children that were here tonight, and how uh, she died in a car crash on June 15th and uh, left seven orphans. And on Sunday afternoon, their family was gathering around, and uh, they were kind enough to, to let me join them at Jarnigan's Funeral Home uh, across the street from Austin East High School. And uh, We went about the work of putting together that painful funeral. And as we walked to the car, one of niece's aunts broke down weeping, and, and she said, uh, uh, My other niece was murdered last week. And she was referring to Unique Brown. And she said that these these kids have to go; those kids right there have to go to two funerals this week. Yeah, I just won't read the paper the same way again. Uh, because now those those are my friends. And one of the things that, that I see now in James one twenty seven that I didn't see before, when it says, before God the Father, God is the father of every orphan and every widow. And if God is their father and he's my father, that means there's a way in which Nisa is my sister and Unica's death is a death in my family too. Well, James tells us to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction. And that is a, a Greek word that refers to intense pressure, distress. One commentator says it means the everyday suffering of the disadvantaged. So it means that we are to come alongside and 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 help relieve in some empowering sort of way the pressure that comes from being a widow or an orphan or Someone in poverty. I think one of the reasons why this is so challenging and one of the reasons why we maybe resist it um, is that is when you have the privilege of starting to get to know friends who are living with, with extreme distress... It, it just really changes your life and it, it starts to break your heart. Uh, one night our, our meet got over late and it was about 10.30 and I was driving four kids to their homes and uh, I let a little guy, I'll call him Marcus, it's not his name, but I let him off in front of his house and there was a party happening on the porch and I couldn't quite see it. I could just see the adults partying. And I, I I yelled out through the window. I said, hey, Marcus swam so good tonight. You'd have been so proud of him. And there was no reply. And, and uh, then finally, a, an adult came down from the porch. And, uh, they were high, too, and shouted at him to get inside. And I... I I just couldn't sleep that night. I, I just kept thinking about what, what's it like to be nine years old and to come into a house um, where all your caregivers are stoned. And and I kept th- this is a simple thing, I just kept thinking, what did he have for breakfast? And of course he didn't. That's the kind of affliction, I think, uh, that we're talking about here is the level of suffering and pain that, Many of our neighbors are going through. And Paul, or rather James says that we're supposed to visit our vulnerable neighbors in a way that can minister to them in their affliction. And that's an interesting word. I had a good time studying, tracking that down this week. Um, the Greek word is a very rich word. It refers to God tenderly caring for his people. It's often used that way. Sometimes it means to be concerned about or to guard or to protect. Uh, the NIV translates it to look after. One Bible dictionary has it. It says the word never implies merely visiting in the usual sense, but always refers to being concerned for others with a sense of responsibility for them. It's actually related to the word for bishop, and it's, it's, it comes with this idea of uh, uh, guarding, protecting, checking in on, examining, looking after James uses it in the present tense. And, and all that means is that it refers to a continual action. So the idea is James is, is envisioning uh, a community of believers who are in an ongoing way caring for and examining and, and, and shepherding and nurturing and guarding and, protectoring, and protecting widows and orphans in their distress and the vulnerable members of the community. So he's talking about a long-term relationship with a vulnerable person. Uh, An ongoing partnership with a neighbor in need. The nature of Christian ministry is is not an event, but it's an incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is hard for us. Uh, And if there's another thing I think I've learned in the ten years that I've been down here and listening and making lots of mistakes is that we need to stop doing drive-by compassion. It doesn't help. A lot of times it hurts. What the Bible is envisioning, I believe, is a relationship, is an incarnation, is a presence, is neighboring. It's not really talking about turkeys at Thanksgiving. And I know we do that. I've done that a hundred times. And I do it because I want to do it, and it's always well intended, and and, and all these things. But I, I just don't think, as a church, and I think in general, that's not the biblical model. The incarnation is more the biblical model. It's being in relationship with people over a long period of time. Now that raises an important question: of well, what does that actually look like to us? And as I prepared this week and thought about this, I was very mindful of all we've been studying in Galatians about being led by the Spirit and about not being overcome by the law and about not doing things out of shame and guilt. And it seems like this kind of sermon is particularly ripe for making a mistake there, for responding out of guilt and and doing something that the Spirit isn't leading us into. So, what do we do if if it's true that religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction? If that's true, what do we do? What does it look like for us to apply it, to obey it? Well, the first thing I'd say is look around you. Uh, Look at the vulnerable members in your world right now. And one of the things that you might ask is, who are your widows and orphans right now? They don't all live in Western Heights. A matter of fact, they might be sitting right next to you tonight. And that's something I think the Lord's been teaching us, uh, and I think we're starting to understand it: is that the most one of the most compassionate ways to do justice, one of the most compassionate ways to care for the vulnerable is to begin first in your own community. That's where we need to start. And it might be someone in your family, it might be someone on your block, it might, it might be someone in your, your small group here. I think we get this confused. I was in the, the gym Thursday morning when I, I was uh, changing and I saw a guy there that I see all the time and, you know, I just make dumb small talk and, hey, how was your workout? And, I've asked him that several times, and he usually says something sort of odd, and I thought, well, I'll keep asking. Which, and he said, okay, I don't work out. I thought, okay, this is going <laughs> to be an interesting conversation. And, and I said, oh, okay. And he said, uh, I've been uh, working 30 years. He, said he went to, later said he went to UT. I lost my job. And I live in my Honda Civic. And this is the only place I can take a shower. And then he said something that was really interesting to me. He said, um, "Here's my re-. I asked him for a resume, and he got it for me. And he said the top reference was uh, the missions pastor at his church. And he said they're very close, and he mentors him through this. The guy's about 55, and he It it, it occurred to me, it just occurred to me how odd that was that the person on staff leading all these trips other places was mentoring a man in his congregation who lived in his Honda Civic. Now, I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm sure I've done things like that too. But the point that that I want to make is let's care for our widows and orphans right here. Let's begin right here. And if we could do that well, and actually I think we're learning, I think we're doing some good things, but if we could really do that well, I think that in itself would be pure religion. Now, Spencer preached a very powerful sermon last week or the week before, I forget. Did I preach last week? I don't remember. I think it was last week. It's been a long week. But uh, (laughs) such a powerful message I had, I forgot it. Um, but he challenged us to think of something, and, I, and I, he essentially said, could the unity that the Trinity envisions be a unity in which involves even economic sharing? And I know that we can go all over the place with that, but the one point that I want to suggest is we can't read each other's minds. Now, it took me about 15 years to read, figure that out in marriage. <laughs> is that my wife couldn't read my mind. I'd mope, you know. Why didn't she do that? Well, I never told her I wanted her to do that. (laughs) We can't read each other's minds. If you have a need, we've got to know about it. And that's a very vulnerable, humble, sometimes painful thing to do. But that dear brother at the Y needed to tell his pastor he was living in his Honda Civic. Don't live in your Honda Civic, beloved. Don't do that. Let us know. We'll figure something out. So I think that's the first place where this applies. And, and someone said to me, you know, if you really start walking in the Spirit and you ask the Spirit to open up your eyes, you're going to see these needs. You don't have to go look for them. You're going to see them. So keep your eyes open. Now, there's a second thing you can do. You could volunteer with a ministry that focuses on a long-term relational presence among the vulnerable. I asked Grant Standifer, who's with the Compassion Coalition, what he'd recommend. A list of ministries. If you feel like, you know, I kind of want to get on the front lines with this. I I, want to volunteer. Here's a few ministries you could work with. Circles of Support provides mentoring teams for former homeless people. Restoration House relies heavily on mentors in its two year program for single moms. Amachi provides mentors for children who have an incarcerated parent. Kiko offers sidewalk Sunday schools for about 800 kids and then they follow up with the kids during the week. Our own Global Seeds works with Iraqi refugees. Hand Up for Women works with women in tough life situations. Kids Hope helps churches adopt a school. Focused prison ministry builds relationship with prisoners and then walks with them after release. The next door provides transitional housing for women ex-offenders. So those are a couple places that you could start. And I know, by the way, uh, uh, we are looking for a couple more mentors right now to walk with some of the children that you've uh, met tonight and a couple others on our swim team. So that's a need that I know of right now, the Amachi Mentoring Program. We're, we're looking for some more mentors right now. But let's consider a third way to to practice pure and undefiled religion. You could adopt a ministry that serves the vulnerable in their affliction. Now, I've heard that about 10% of active military actually serve on the front lines, and the rest of the military support them. So perhaps you're not called to mentor a child or or to work with an ex-offender. Maybe you could support those who do. And rather than being overwhelmed by all the needs and all the fundraising campaigns and all the letters and all the mail, maybe you could prayerfully discern one ministry. You see what's on your heart, the, the broken part of the city that's most on your heart, find someone who's working on it. By the way, someone's always working on it. You don't need to invent anything. Find it and then become its champion. And, and be that one ministry's biggest fan. Pray for it every day. Get to know its leadership. Take the staff out to, to lunch. Uh, if you've got resources, give them a Christmas gift. If you've got a beach house, send them to it. They're mostly working at poverty wages themselves. Just come, go to their cheesy fundraisers. Uh, write big checks. Just be all over that one ministry. And then, when you get all those other requests to go to other cheesy fundraisers, you say... Oh, no thanks, because I support this cheesy fundraiser. Okay? It makes it real real simple. Focus on one ministry and support them. Now, where I want to start kind of wrapping up is, is to talk about this, oh, gosh, this tension that I, and I guess it's just this that this kind of ministry that we've committed to is both. Elegant and brutal. There, there are moments of just sheer beauty. And, and, and let me give you a an update on this little story. You, you just blew me away. I shared with you about one of the mothers on our team, Marquisa, and how her car broke down. And she's she she told me she works a triple. She works at Cheddar's restaurant. She cleans houses, and she works at Ruth Chris's. Restaurant. She does it often all in the same day to try to keep her kids in, in uh, piano lessons and swimming. And she car broke down. And I shared that with you. And my phone blew up. And, and you began to, to email me and talk to me and say, you know, I can change the oil or I know a car dealer or I'd like to give some money. And uh, uh, when I got out of a uh, wedding rehearsal Friday night, I had a voicemail from Marquisa. And Danny Norman, some of you know Danny, he called me, and he said, I'm just going to walk her through this whole thing. So they went out, and they looked at cars and, and everything. And, and uh, if we could put the picture up, that's the uh, picture I had in my phone on Friday night. Isn't that beautiful? It's a 2004 Crown Vic, v V8. So that thing hopefully will run forever. So that's Marquisa. Um, but that, this is so beautiful, the way, uh, the way that you all responded. But the other side of it is, for every picture like that, there's maybe three or four that aren't as happy, or at least aren't as complete. And I may have told you that essay I wrote for Christianity Today about this little guy we're calling Martin, and and how he was starving, and and at the end of the summer, uh, we went looking for him to give him an award, and his caregiver... Uh, said he didn't know where he was, and it ended, we basically lost touch with him at that point. We didn't know where he was. And the editor for Christianity Today, great editor, by the way, um, wrote me back right before we posted the essay, and she said, you know, you've got to come up with a better ending. And I said, well, well, what do you mean? (laughs) And she said, it's it's not happy, and it's not hopeful enough. You've got to, you know, add something. And I wrote back, and I said, well, it's your magazine, but... Uh, you do what you want, but I said that was sort of the point um, <laughs> that it, more often than not there's not there's not a thank you letter at the end it 's not always a uh, happy ending, and his story has not yet ended happily, and that 's part of the challenge of all this now here 's what 's tricky for me, and here 's what I learned this morning at even as I was preaching at Cedar Springs, and that, that, that's something odd that happens sometimes, is you figure out, I figure out what's going on in my own heart even as I'm trying to minister the word of God. I know God's calling me personally, and I think some of you, to go deeper with some of these kids. I, I can't just say goodbye to them in August and pick them up again in, in June. I just can't do it. And by the way, we're having a meeting in the conference room uh, right after church to talk about trying to get some of these kids over to the the Pilot Aquatic Club, Tennessee Aquatics. They're opening up their doors to us and helping us. And some of the little ones need drivers and meals and all that. And if if you have any interest in that at all, maybe you could join us. We're trying to figure out what to do with all that. But when I got to this point of the sermon this morning in the first service at Cedar Springs... I, I, came un, I, I came unglued. I, I began to weep. Which, for the record, is about my least favorite thing to do in front of 2,000 people. <laughs> and I realized that I was feeling responsible to save Martin. Martin. And that I felt responsible to help Marquisa get out of poverty. And that I was just feeling all these burdens to help these kids. And I, I think I burned out this summer, honestly. I, I think I, I got to a place of burnout. And I know better. I've been, it's not my first rodeo. I've been doing this a long time. But I let my Sabbath get away from me, uh, and so I, I stood there and I blubbered. Yeah, I'm, I realize that you can't end a sermon like that. That's what they teach you in seminary. Um, and I was asking the Lord, "Where is the hope in this?" And, and he directed me, and he'd been moving me there earlier in the day, to that little phrase, before God, in verse 27. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God. It, it can mean with God or alongside of God. And, and he, just, he just showed me right there that I was a mess this morning and at the end of this summer because at some profound level, I'd try to do this without God. God. I try to do it on my own. So maybe the hope in this, and the message in this, and the way this connects with what we've been learning in Galatians, is that however you connect with this sermon, in whatever way God calls you to respond to James one it it's got to be with God. It's got to be in God, alongside of God, through God, by God, around God. It's the only possible way that we can sustain the kind of ministry we're called to. Let's pray.